0: In recent years, several scholars of religion have moved away from the examination of discursive textual domains or the meaning of ritual practices towards analyzing the material worlds in which these practices and beliefs exist. Brent Plate has been one of the forerunners of this turn and provides an accessible starting point for novices in key terms in material religion. In recent years, several scholars of religion have moved away from the examination of discursive textual domains, or the meaning of ritual practices, towards analyzing the material worlds in which these practices and beliefs exist. Brent Plate has been one of the forerunners of this turn and provides an accessible starting point for novices in Key Terms in Material Religion, published with Bloomsbury in 2015. The collected set of short essays explores new perspectives on a number of familiar themes that have been historically important within the study of religion, such as belief, magic, fetish, words, sacred, or ritual. The volume also reveals the dominant themes in the field of material religion, such as objects, senses, time and space, and new horizons like sound, smell, or taste. Overall, the authors begin from the perspective that material forms shape how we understand the world and solidify identities through physical performance. In our conversation, we discuss the long history of the collection and its beginnings in the Material Religion Journal of Objects, Art, and Belief, the selection of terms, what we privilege when thinking about material aspects of religion, creative ways to use the text in the classroom, Material aesthetics, urban space and religion in the city, prayer as a site of materiality, exhibiting religion in museums, and where young scholars might take new research in material religion. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to another episode of New Books in Religion. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Brent Plate about key terms in material religion.
1: Welcome, Brent. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Religion. How are you doing?
2: Doing great. Uh, sitting here in a uh, snowy Madrid just now, and uh, it's nice to nice to watch the snow come down, uh, even though it's, um, it's supposed to be springtime here.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a strange time all, all across the world. So um, so th- this book, Key Terms of Material Religion, uh, this, I think, is a really useful resource. Um, I think people that are both working in material religion um, and those that are interested in it are going to really benefit from it. So thank you for, for putting it together. It's our tradition here at New Books and Religion to always start with a little biographical note. Um, but we, we spoke a while ago about one of your books on film and you, you kind of gave us a load down there. Uh, but for people who are maybe just picking up this conversation, can you talk a little bit about how you got interested in perhaps the study of material religion? Um, uh, you know, Knowing your background, I would assume some of the roots are in, in your very early work. Uh, but this is something you've been working on for a long time. So what what sparked your interest in this area? Um, in what ways have you done research uh, in material
2: religion? Yeah, thanks. I, um, my, uh, I guess my journey academic journey began with uh, interest in the visual and uh, interest in visual arts and film and uh, video art, especially much of my dissertation uh, back at Emory University in the 1990s was on uh, a video artist, and um, so got to keep up with certain trends in modern and postmodern art history, uh, as well as film and media studies. And this was uh, about a time when people like David Morgan and Sally Promi were were sort of articulating religion and visual culture. You know, rather than sort of a move from not just religion and the arts, but visual culture and thinking about not just the the artwork but the reception of the art and what people did with the arts and Of course, that meant also a move from thinking about the object itself as sort of a piece of fine art to including popular art and um, Mm -hmm. even, even as many of them would say, kitschy, kitsch art and uh, the low arts. Um, Of course, those distinctions are always problematic, but um, it really opened up a lot of ways to think about the way religious people actually operate in their lives, and how how vision is an important construction in uh, religious life in many places around the world and many religious traditions. Um, So I sort of got into religious visual culture and uh, began to do that, uh, sort of edited and uh, wrote sort of long essays to uh, what became a sort of a a fairly standard textbook in a lot of ways, uh, religion, art, and visual culture back in 2002. And from there, began to even there. Actually, I was beginning to talk about aesthetics uh, as the sort of primary place. So, vision happens. It's something bodily based. It's not. It's not a disembodied experience. It's a very bodily experience. And quickly, didn't take too much time to, to realize that I had to sort of jump to the other senses as well and think about more than just vision. So, I begin to incorporate. You know ways to think about sound and touch and smell and uh, and taste and uh, and the many other you know possible variations of senses maybe uh, balance and a sense of uh, sense of direction and a sense of, uh, kind of kinesthetic sensibilities and all that all that that might entail. Um, so what that really meant was a whole scale sort of thinking about religion itself in terms of the body and the body and not just as sort of some theorists begin to. Think about the body some years ago, and and it just sort of was an inert mass of things. And I think since then, a lot of us have tried to think through what are the elements of the body. What are the how do how does the body uh, how can we analyze the body and the role of the body? And one of the ways to think about it is through the role of the senses. How do the how do the different senses create uh, our bodies, our perceiving bodies? How are they? How do those perceiving bodies change from culture to culture? And Religious tradition to religious tradition, and ultimately, how do they um, become central to this thing we call religious experience so I think it sort of went you know from this kind of visual arts to think broadly about visual culture to think more broadly about the body, and then that sort of segues into what we you know begin to call material religion, um, which was a term back you know twenty years ago really. See a couple instances of it in the 1990s. Um, some terms like ma- the material culture of religion, uh, but then with uh, in conversations with several people, mainly um, David Morgan, uh, who's now at Duke University, um, and uh, Crispin Payne, who's uh, a now retired uh, museum um, uh, consultant. Uh, the three of us and uh, some others begin to talk about forming a journal called Material Religion. And, uh, within a couple years, we brought on, uh, Birgit Meyer, uh, anthropologist in, uh, the Netherlands. So we developed this, this journal called Material Religion. We first started, started publishing in 2005. And now we're, you know, I'm just putting in, um, proofs for our 13th year of publishing. Every year we've, uh, it's gotten bigger and, uh, more, more submissions. Uh, we're able to expand the page, page size every year. And uh, more submissions and uh, all that, so it's it's become kind of a you know a nice successful foray into one element of religious studies that uh, I think it's been good uh, good for those of us involved, and I think sort of hopefully challenging to to many other people um, thinking about how to do the study of religion in ways that you know help complement and supplement the attention you know important attention to texts and to reading and to to knowing these. Particular languages, ancient languages, and and, and other things. But uh, here's another another way to think about it, um, and in some ways gives a gives a credence to a to the popular religion um, as opposed to those who who were literate and would, would would use the texts and create the you know the priests overseeing rituals in temple spaces and things like that. This is these are the popular popular accounts. Um that doesn't distinguished material of religion. I think is bigger than just popular, but uh, certainly it takes into account the popular expressions of religion and not just those sort of texts and doctrines handed down by by elites uh, through the years. So that's sort of a I don't know maybe a long handed way of uh, sort of suggesting this expanding out um, towards uh, towards these things, but also an, a narrowing too, finding a finding a A way to articulate a set of interests and give it a name Um, so the term material religion I think is now fairly well used and and under well maybe not understood I don't know about that but um, it's uh, it's understood what it's referring to I think across uh, religious studies in ways that it you know wasn't uh, 10 or 20 years ago
1: Hmm. now uh, this the key terms project here it it kind of stems from your work with the journal um, so, could you talk a little bit about uh, how this project emerged as a book perhaps uh, and you know maybe since your role as editor both at the journal and then of this book, um, can you talk about maybe the thought process you had at the different stages uh, you know this is this is unique in terms of its development compared to other edited volumes, and i know you 've done others, so perhaps what what was going on in in terms of thinking about this long term, thinking about it more as a as a book project and what it might do? Uh, what 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 happened over the years?
2: Yeah, it really, it began with um, uh, we had an editors meeting at uh, Duke University in I think it was twenty ten twenty eleven somewhere around there. Um, so Birgit, Crispin, David and I sat around and. Talking about the you know past and future of the journal, we were coming up on our ten year ten year anniversary and starting to make plans for the ten year anniversary of that um, and thinking about where we've come from and thought well it's you know what if we do a special issue that thinks about you know where we've come? And more talking. It was really a brainstorming session. One of those great times where you sit around and talk, and you come up with come up with an idea. And uh, everybody says, "Yeah, this is great." And one person contributes, and the next person, you know, layers on top of that. And before we knew it, we we had the outline <laughs> of uh, basically key terms in material religion, which we we originally ran as a special issue in the journal. So, uh, which was again very unusual special issue. But we had uh, what did we have? I think ninth where do we have some I can't remember exactly how many of them 18 or 19 uh, initial entries for uh, for the journal Um and so we, we asked, you know, went around and developed categories and then asked uh, specialists in these fields to contribute. Um, so, you know, Tom Tweed, who's, you know, sort of fairly well-known for his 2006 book on crossing and dwelling and thinking about the the place of space in, in religious studies. So he was an obvious one to ask to write up a short piece on space and um, a number of other people like that. Bob Orsi talking about belief. Um, David Chittister talking about sacred and uh, and Taves talking about the mind brain connection. So we had some you know sort of an immediate list of uh, probably ten people and ten i ten ten uh, entries that would be good. And then sort of searched for for others and came up with a special issue that year. And that was really got to be a popular issue and a lot of people um, used it in classrooms and the like. And and we sort of had always talked the four of us editors had talked about you know maybe doing something beyond that. And for various reasons, that everybody was involved in their own projects, and I started talking to Bloomsbury, and who was publishing the journal at the time, and said, "Well, what if we take these, turn it into a longer book, and make it kind of a textbook?" And um, they said, "Yeah, that's that's great." And so basically, doubled it in size, in size uh, included a lot of the entries that we had, um, you know, wanted to do in the first place, but couldn't because of space. Uh, And so got it up to, I think we're up to 37 entries in total. Um, So the the plan behind it was, you know, to do a keywords thing, but also make them them relatively brief because we wanted to, I wanted to do, you know, of course I'm sacrificing, it's obvious, sacrificing um, uh, depth for for breadth. Uh, Wanted to hit just a lot of fields, wanted to be a, you know, a primer, a sampler even of sorts, and I'm not really afraid to to say that you know it's sort of a bad word sort of a lot of times in academia that you shouldn't just sample things but i think this i think it works uh for for that and it's not the end all of it and i would certainly mistrust anything that pretended that it was sort of the definitive uh work on the on the area so this this allows people to look at um, uh, issue like uh, maps or emotion or um, sign, and you know here's a few instructive pages sort of wet the whistle a little bit, and then you know go on and, and read some more. And there's suggestions in the bibliography um, for for other ways to read about it. And uh, so ideally, you know, it's for people to sort of think about the range of what material religion. Might include uh, how to think about it, challenge teachers to, to teach it in the classroom. Um, it doesn't, you know, I don't think it would work as a textbook just to sort of assign a chapter a day and, and work through it that way, but I, I think it works as a, again, as a sampler, it, it's modular, um, and I think allows people to sort of dip in here and there and uh, take up uh, a chapter or two for a class. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I've heard from many people in many places who have used you know several chapters out of it for a class on you know everything from religions in the u.s. to uh visual culture to um you know religions in in europe uh as well as and just sampling a a few things here and there so it's that's kind of the origins and the um the the work of it really began as a as a group projects with us editors and then I, i sort of expanded it, uh, doubled the size and, uh, published it as a, as a standalone book. It just did, of course, I'd, a, it's much cheaper if, if teachers want to assign it and use it as a, as a textbook as well as, um, just anybody wanting to pick it up much cheaper than buying a whole journal issue, um, to, to publish as a book state of publishing today, which I won't get into, mm-hmm. but sure. uh, <laughs> it makes it more accessible to actually have it as a book rather than have it as journal articles.
1: Now, um, just in thinking about your <clears throat> your role as an editor and a team of editors uh, in selection of these terms, many of them are obviously historically important to the study of religion. You have things like belief and ritual and magic, uh, others I would assume are essential to the study of material religion, many which you've already mentioned right space and object and senses um, mm-hmm. however, uh, some of them perhaps are are less uh, dominant in the field. Uh, in the study of religion or in the study of material religion. So um, were there terms, people you included uh, in terms of kind of pushing new horizons in the study of material religion, uh, almost more instead of descriptive of what people do, uh, almost a kind of prescriptive nod? Um, were there entries that you were trying to steer uh, people into new research questions or or things like this?
2: Absolutely, yeah, really And that's, you know, part of the, you know, on one hand, a negative way to put it, the diffuseness of it is uh, 37 different uh, entries on a variety of things. And, yeah, exactly, as you said, some of them are, are, you know, very much endemic to the study of religion. It's hard to think about religion uh, without them. Um, Yeah, again, things like uh, prayer, uh, even, you know, in certain ways space has become kind of a dominant way to think about uh religion for for a number of uh in a number of ways from jonathan z smith's uh work to um to uh, tom tweed's work and uh and that of kim kim not as well in the uk so the these are but then there's there's other ones yes exactly so things like um i I really wanted to include uh race and gender in this because i there really has not been I think, enough done on that from the perspective of material religion. Uh, we've, we've, we've published certainly articles through, in the journal uh, over the years, but um, it really has not been in a uh, key kind of, key fields, these sort of dis- identity uh, description uh, categories that we use that are you know so hugely important in our sociopolitical life. Um, but so things like uh, race and uh, race and gender, I really want to do and include those and, and suggest, you know, that we, we, you know, we need more research in this, you know, so much of what's going on in, uh, I think, feminist studies and religion and, and uh, studies of race, whether it's, um, you know, African-American life in the U.S. or, or other is, is, is not paying, you know, I, I wish some of that would pay more attention to the material Materiality, and I I think race and gender are highly constructed uh, materially. It's it's about vision and it's about senses and it's about bodies. um, That how those you know these are socially constructed categories, and those are socially constructed. I think very much through bodily and sensual. Um, ways that um, we, we can't just go on and analyze texts uh, to, to talk about race and really really get at it. So, it, you know, Roberto Linz-Sagorina had him, you know, discuss taco trucks, <laughs> sort of his kind of key, key source to think about, you know, the version of Guadalupe on the side of a taco truck in East Los Angeles and uh, think about how, you know, race and um, religion and um, visual, these visual symbols are sort of tied up. Uh, with each other, so there's all these identification identifications going on with these uh, with these material objects, so I think it's you know really important to 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 pay attention to that i am you know concerned about the state of um well race and <laughs> race and gender and, and sexuality in and, in and, uh religious life in contemporary United States and well, really around the world um and you know we need we need more and better tools to be analyzing. Uh, What's going on, Um, you know, many of us working in film have been able to think about, you know, how, you know, film depicts certain representations and it's, you know, had a not a very good record of of uh, films have not had a very good uh, record of accounting for people of other um, other ethnicities besides sort of the dominant wasp culture of the United States. And uh, so these kind of critiques are, are are hugely important, not just for the study of religion, but for you know sociopolitical life uh, as well. So yeah, so those things I, I really wanted to insert and, and push on. And, uh, and there's plenty of uh, issues on sexuality that come out in, um, for instance, Anne Pellegrini's uh, entry mm-hmm. on movement and uh, other spa- other other places besides. So those are those are you know. Taking taking the dominant sort of categories of of uh, you know say belief and prayer and things like that that you'd expect in a study of religion, but then also adding these other ones, uh, as well as dividing up the senses, you know, and sort of having specific pieces on, uh, for example, smell and uh, food, and how these how these material sensual categories also are, are very strong, even though they're they're really just beginning. I mean, there's really not a lot of studies on. Smell in religion, uh, as of yet, uh, they're they're increasingly coming out now. But um, there, uh, so my including an entry on smell by uh, James McHugh, at um, uh, works on South Asian materials uh, at USC. He um, it was able to bring out the importance of smell and and hopefully open that up for other people studying religion and other other traditions and other other regions of the world. Um, so yeah, so some of it's taking taking the old pushing pushing on some new things. Uh, some of it, of course, just editor editors' prerogative to yeah. include things that you know I I think are important and it, and it's not you know hopefully it's not too um um. I didn't leave it to chance, you know, I mean, this is sort of also as a result of being the editor of of this journal for the last 15 years and working with, you know, literally hundreds of people around the world and having, you know, conversations and especially through email and reading hundreds and hundreds of essays over the years on this area of material religion. So getting a, you know, getting a sense of it from that, I didn't do it systematically and write out all the Write out all the essays and say, ah, oh, here's 25 talking about smell and 10 talking about cities and this and then added them all up. But um, it was more uh, much more of a um, uh, admittedly subjective uh, sensibility of that.
1: Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm, I think it's great coverage. And uh, <clears throat> there are these terms that uh, one might expect, even if they're not familiar with. This kind of subfield in the book, there is these that are kind of pushing new boundaries, and then there's some that are perhaps even unexpected, uh, like city. You just mentioned you have an entry on city, so uh, <clears throat> maybe to kind of zoom in a little on uh, on thinking about this entry, what what might we think about in terms of urban space in relation to religious communities? Uh, what might we consider if we're thinking of city as a as an analytical uh, category or horizon?
2: Yeah, it sort of stems, you know, in some ways it's related to space, of course. Um, but space is, you know, and even as, as Tom Tweed's entry on space suggests, you know, this is kind of a, a big, huge, diverse, di- diverse and diffuse kind of category. And he breaks it down uh, nicely and gives a nice analytic for it. Um, city is a, obviously a very specific type of space and includes a whole lot more, you know, including uh, when you mm-hmm. take it down to that, you're dealing with architecture, architecture uh, as the... Um, as uh, Sophie Watson um, with uh, Francis Dodsworth and Alina Vicelli, uh, the three of them working on a larger research project uh, that actually they, they worked on a special issue of Material Religion for us uh, several years ago on uh, East London and the sort of religious landscape of East London. So this kind of comes out of that same project. Um, so the, the city is uh, the city is includes includes space, but it also includes, of course, architecture. But then it includes planning, urban planning. It includes uh, regulations and rules that are that are set by city governments and, and as well as national governments about you know how high buildings can be, how wide they can be, how close to roads they can be. You know all these uh, all these elements um, that that go into considering how, you know religious. We often don't think about religious life as needing to take any atten- pay any attention to zoning laws. And yet, of course, zoning laws hugely influence the way religion is practiced. Um, you, you know, This has been true for a lot of European cities lately where uh, Muslim immigrants have moved in and they've wanted to build mosques and then they run up against city ordinances that say, well, yeah, that's fine, you can have a mosque, but you just can't build a minaret or you can have it, but it can't be... Too high, you know, or many, many bans on mosques have come around because, you know, I mean, it's kind of a two sided thing. On one hand, the city says, well, we don't want it because you're breaking city ordinances when you're building this. You know, it's too high. It's doing the wrong thing in the wrong place. Um, Of course, on the other side, it's many places you can it's it's clear there's sort of an anti Muslim sentiment behind the behind the uh, city ordinances. So cities cities offer you know kind of this dynamic way to think about all these things together. It's, uh, it's it's legal regulations, it's architecture, it's urban planning. There's artistic dimensions to it, and then ultimately for me, I'm really the the people who, um, uh, Sophie Watson and, and company writing this chapter didn't talk about this specifically, but I, it touches for me. It touches on this sort of long term. Project I've been interested in um, uh, Guy Debord, the the French uh, Situationist, who sort of well known for his Society of the Spectacle uh, book in the '60s. Uh, some years before that, he term he had this term called psychogeography, and he's sort of interested in looking at urban spaces and thinking how how spaces impacted the emotions and behaviors of individuals, and um, they developed these kind of avant garde practices around that. But um, but you know vanguard practices aside this kind of idea of psychogeography it's really interesting how the geography gives rise to the psychology and and i think we can adapt that i think the 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 writers of some of these chapters have, have gone some way towards that that geography gives rise to religious thought and religious experience um so there's a there's a uh, a re- a religio geography that that takes place. So religion can't happen, or at least it wouldn't happen in the same way uh, without the geography, without the city spaces, without the zoning laws um, telling you ways you can build, and 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 all of that. So the the, the entry you know gives a great sort of brief connection of uh, history of East London and and. Some clashes and ways that Christian and Jewish communities have come together, and then uh, into into the later years, into uh, as Christian Muslims and uh, Jewish congregations have tried to establish spaces in East London, and how these have been, um, you know, sometimes come into clashes with each other, but uh, but oftentimes finding sort of value in each other and certain uh, kind of interreligious. Um, I don't know. It's not really a dialogue, but interreligious connections and um, meeting points uh, occur, and those are different, right? Than we, then if we think about it through the cityscape rather than through you know what people got together and sat down and talked together in a room. You know, when did the did the priest and the rabbi and the imam get down and talk in a room together well that's that's one interesting way to think about it the other way is to think about what what buildings can you see here's a here's a square kilometer of london you know what what buildings are in there how do people use those buildings how does that change the external community um, the interaction uh, from one group to the other so i really i like the uh, i like the piece on city and then in some ways that's related also to the entry on maps which which takes us to uh, you know, another part of the world, and uh, comes out of a project uh, worked on in, in Mumbai, on uh, mapping, mapping Mumbai and mapping the uh, world's uh, the the religious uh, sites and temples in Mumbai, and again, it's similar to the cities in that you know, meet up with regulations, and some people would uh, set up. Set up temples just to change the zoning laws in certain places, and uh, roadways had to be altered because of uh, because of temple building and things like that, so it becomes a very highly politicized uh, st- uh, structure to to have these religious communities within particular parts of cities
1: now another entry that uh you haven't kind of touched upon yet that. I think it might be interesting for, for listeners and hopefully uh, readers as well is the one on prayer uh, where there might be certain assumptions about what prayer consists of, what are the uh, avenues we need to think about it through. Um, but this entry I think does some interesting stuff because it thinks about prayer as a site of materiality. So what aspects of prayer are materialized and – how does a material religion approach expand our understanding of this uh, seemingly essential character of of all religions? Prayer.
2: Yeah, I was excited to have this uh, included in uh, Andy Blanton's work on on prayer and the materiality of prayer. His um, it sort of became was was part of the uh, book that he published um, pretty much around the same time called Hitting Hidden: Hittin The Prayer Bones: The Materiality of Spirit." In the Pentecostal South, and um, so it was great to great to be able to include this. Prayer is such a seemingly immaterial thing, right? That I think so many people would say, "Oh, you know, it's nothing to do with materiality." And yet, through through uh, Andy's work and uh, through a larger um, sort of project um, on the materiality of prayer, that's that was taken up. Um, Uh, in Europe, and then a lot of it was posted on uh, SSRC, Social Science Research Calendar, uh, or um, Council. Uh, They have a website called Reverberations and um, on uh, new directions in the study of prayer. And there's a number of people, Andy Blanton, a number of those, as well as uh, James Biello and um, Hilary Kale and some others contributed pieces to that, uh, Bob Orsi as well. So they the idea of sort of thinking about you know when we talk about prayer as being kind of immaterial—it's just these thoughts just going directly up to you know God or the spirits or the goddesses—and yet what we when we look around and we look at prayer, we find all kinds of ways that it takes on these material uh, encounters. So there's uh, prayer dolls, as as Andy Blanton talks about in the in the piece, prayer dolls, and from the you know nineteenth twentieth century. He gives uh, various diagrams of these uh, dolls that say you say their bed- bedtime prayers, and you can find um, Muslim prayer dolls as well as Christian prayer dolls, and uh, as well as uh, you know things like prayer. He doesn't he doesn't get into it as much here, but uh, prayer cloths, prayer shawls, um, ways that uh, you know certain rhythms and uh, clapping. Um, uh, things like that, and prayer, prayer cards, prayer code, postcards, all these ways that prayer has been uh, materialized, that prayer takes these material forms. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a curious thing that we, we again, I think, I think there's always a, somewhat of a disjuncture between what religious people, what we say we do, and how we actually do it, right? So very often we'll, very often we'll deny that there's anything material about what we're doing, and yet, when you sort of look at it, it's filled with materiality. You know, the, 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 the prayer, you know, even, even the kind of typical prayer, if you want to show it on television, right? You show a kid praying and they, they, they're at their bedside, right? They get down on their knees, they put their hands together, right? There's a very physical, uh, shape to it all and it symbolizes for us that this, yes, this kid is now going to pray. And, you know, we sort of wait in the, in the television show for, for something to come out of the kid's mouth. Um, so there's a there's a sense that you know prayer is you know and some may may want to argue in this sort of very strict kind of way and say well no really it just only has to do with prayer really only has to be uh direct communication with god and it's it's our innermost thoughts and there's really nothing and yet that in reality that just rarely happens if if at all right the the real the real situation is that it's filled with material structures we we put our Put our bodies in various uh, particular ways. We um, we use these apparatuses uh, around us, whether it's dolls or cloths or uh, or cards, um, and and we need. And you know, the thing is, it's. Of course, this idea of prayers being immaterial is bound up, I think, with this individualization of of religion. This idea that religion is this kind of personal, one person only kind of kind of thing, whereas of course, throughout history, it's been much more, much more broader than that. And things like prayer, and you know, relatedly, in Easter traditions, what we you know talk about as meditation practices. They're they're very difficult to do, and you need other people to do them with them. And you need uh, we need these accoutrements to 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 perform uh, these these practices and to keep ourselves in line uh, with doing these things. So we we, we rely, as as uh, Andy. Talks about we rely on these things. We rely on the uh, the apparatuses of belief. I think is one of the one of the terms he uses. Um, we have an, an apparatus of belief. I, I, I like that phrase. It's a good way to, to, to think about these things. And then of course, finally, he he, he briefly mentions, as as others have, uh, the that it's part of media. So there's channels on television um you know devoted to prayer and um you you know you watch your television you listen to your television and there's prayer going on on the television you participate in prayer through the media uh and that's you know the the latest extent and of course the internet then uh, takes that even further but uh, that that kind of thing has been going on for you know thousands of years Uh, the radio did it before that and uh print did it before that um, so it's never and even even orality even performing you know prayers of performance it's something spoken out and it's it's heard and it's it's done in particular kinds of ways and places and with bodies in particular positions so all of it sort of through and through is a material material process which again I, I think is I think if anybody kind of looks at it they think oh yeah well yeah, I, I get that. You know, it it's so much of the stuff I think is, is obvious. <laughs> it just it's just we've been trained not to kind of think about it in these terms. We've been trained not to believe prayer has a material dimension to it. And then when you sort of point all this out, it's like, Oh yeah, well, obviously it's there. Just it all seems kind of obvious, I think, in certain ways. But we, we just we've we've ignored it. We've we've learned how to ignore it for for a very long time.
1: Now, there's several entries in the volume, uh, things like mask, thing, collection, display that uh, revolve around kind of the orbit of museums perhaps. Um, and you you have more recently than the Key Terms book uh, published a, a edited book on religion and museums. Um, so maybe from what's happening in the Key Terms book and then what, what you're up to in the religion and museums book. Uh, what what should we consider when thinking about exhibiting religion in museums? How does this new book perhaps uh, aim to demonstrate these these critical approaches?
2: Yeah, museums has always been a, a kind of a key part of our larger material religion project. You know, from the very beginning, Crispin Payne, who's uh, you know worked in museums and and published a, a couple books himself on. Um, um, one was godly things, and uh, another one um, was uh, religious was religious objects in museums from a few years ago that he wrote himself. And then he and I and Gretchen Bugeln uh, at Valparaiso University, the three of us co-edited this recent "Religion in Museums" uh, just out from Bloomsbury Publishing just um, uh, last month, in fact. And so, yeah, it's it's always kind of museums have always been an important way to think about. Material religion. You know, you think uh, you think about the ways. You know, there's uh, what's that? I can't remember the number offhand, but it's literally hundreds of millions, almost several hundred million museum visits in the United States every year alone. And it's actually the number is actually higher, sort of per visitor um, to museums than amusement parks and and sporting events combined. Um, there's more more tickets sold for museums than there are for amusement parks and, and sporting events combined. So it's, it's you know, but people don't, again, we sort of don't think about that. And yet, you know, these, these huge elements uh, of our culture um, and, and what we find across archaeology museums and history museums and art museums and, and others are, you know, the presence of religion. You know, there's sacred objects in there. These objects sometimes were, you know, were stolen, were taken inappropriately. Uh, in many cases um, or you know legitimately uh, purchased in in, in other ways or donated and yet there are all these religious objects from various places uh, around the world and and through history so museums play this huge role in shaping the public understanding of religion and i think that's you know important to kind of highlight that this is a museums are play you know play that kind of role alongside the institution of you know, say the Catholic Church or, um, you know, the North American uh, Mosque Association or, or various groups like that, There's the, there are these institutions that are museums and they are shaping public discourse uh, about uh, religion. So I think, you know, a lot more needs, a lot more conversation needs to go on uh, with that. So with the Key Terms book, we included, so Crispin wrote um, uh, entry on display, or I'm sorry, he wrote the one on collection, and then we had another one, Ivan Gaskill, who's at uh, Bard Graduate Center now, uh, formerly of uh, Harvard University um, Art Museums. Um, so Gaskill wrote on, uh, on uh, collection. And both of them, again, sort of, uh, or I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry, Gaskill wrote on display and, uh, and Crispin Payne wrote on, uh, wrote on collections. So two different kinds of ways of thinking about this. Uh, these museums and ways, entries into museums. So with these, there's this, this, and what Crispin gets at with this piece on collection is this long-term sort of human uh, love of collecting. You know, here's these objects. Let's collect them. Let's hold them. Let's bring them together. Let's put them in one space. You know, and, and scholars do it. You know, and, and you know you can go around to. to probably been around, you know, your, your colleagues' offices, and everybody each office, you know, they've got a little collection of things, you know, they keep around their desk or around their bookshelves, and um, we, we're all sort of, it's kind of a, a human impulse to collect things, and uh, so museums are become these official repositories for, for certain collections, and they're legitimized in certain ways when they go inside the museum, you know, where it's it's just some guy's idiosyncratic collection of of trinkets when it's outside the museum, but when it's inside the museum, it becomes something more on a, you know, maybe a state or a national kind of level. Um, So what is that, you know, that process of bringing things into museum spaces, and there's obviously a similarity to the the sacralization, you know, and what, what scholars have talked about is the museumification of objects, just like things become sacred when they're taken from one place into another, um, so is uh, so are objects. They become, in a sense, sacred when they're taken and put in put put into a museum space. So museums are. So we got at it in the key terms collection through through a couple of the entries, uh, and then that sort of you know in certain ways segued for me uh, into this other other field of, of museums, which I've been interested in for a long time. Actually, I've written about it for for uh, over the dec over a couple of decades now. I've had Parts of my work talking about museums, um, but here I got a chance to sort of work on a whole book project with Crispin and, and again with Gretchen on uh, religion and museums, and that became uh, you know it's become kind of a, a fun way to think about. It. I'll probably keep going with that uh, uh, a fair amount. I've been talking with um, Peter Manso, who's now the at the Smithsonian's uh, National Museum of American History is the uh, Lily curator of American. I might not get this exactly right. American religious history, there. So it's uh, Lily's just donated five million dollars to you know think about how religion uh, plays itself out in American history and how a museum can present that and and create that, uh, create the research, the collection, um, any kind of symposia and things like that around it. So Peter Manso is uh, heading that up. There. And so I think there's just these great, interesting new movements in museums and the public understanding of religion, um, which, which of course on the total other side is the Museum of the Bible, uh, soon to open in, uh, in Washington DC as well, sort of put on by, of course, private money, Walmart, uh, the Green family and, uh, Walmart money, um, and a decidedly sort of conservatively uh, theologically conservative perspective on what the Bible is and what it means, and here's some people you know you have a lot of money you can shape public opinion with and and how do you do it? Well, you can make films and people do that you can make t v shows and people do that, but you can also create a museum and you know get millions of people to come in to the museum spaces and you you uh, very actively shape public opinion about what religion is and what it what it does and the the veracity of it. Um, through museums, so museums are, are you know, on one hand we can think of them as neutral spaces, but of course they never, never are that. So pursuing the display, the collection, the ways things are, are given to people to look at, that becomes uh, a, a political, a political act, a sociopolitical act. So again, right, thinking about material religion through this, I think it offers a. You know, it's a it's a way for scholars to think about it, but it's also, I think, a sociopolitical uh, movement that offers a, a bit of criticism to activists and others.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah, this is the the key terms book uh, does a wonderful job of kind of laying out at least some of the the introductory steps for thinking about this, and uh, hopefully people will check out the religion and museums uh, volume as well. Um, I'm always excited about the things you're, you're doing, so that, that's one I will track down uh, and Crispin's work too I'm a, I'm a fan of. So um, what, what are you working on now? Um, you're always doing lots and lots of things it seems like. So <laughs> what, what exciting things are you doing now? What uh, publications uh, or other types of activities can we perhaps see the fruits of your labor in, uh, in the near future?
2: Well, I'm I'm trying to enjoy my last few months of uh, on uh, <laughs> taking a personal uh, personal teaching leave and I've been living in in Spain for the past 2 years and it's uh first teaching break I've had in 20 years so it's been really nice to be away as much as I love teaching it's just been a nice break and uh, enjoy uh enjoy Madrid a lot. Um but I've been of course been been working on other stuff. I have t- two two books coming out this year on uh on film, religion and film again, so I've got a basically a four Routledge has a uh, sort of big reference set for Rout- Routledge. It's a four-volume uh, set on film and religion. And it's got, it's like 1,500 pages worth of already published material that I took and edited and collated and put into categories. And uh, so that'll be out uh, the next couple months. Uh, and then sort of alongside that is the second revised, you know, 12-inch 12, 12 extended remix version of my um, book Religion and Film that I first did in 2009 with uh, Wallflower Press, it uh, came out in Wallflower Shortcut series, and by shortcuts they mean short books, and it was a perfect thing for me at the time. Um, but I've, you know, lots changed in my ideas since then. So I worked with Columbia University Press, so they're, and I've basically added it's about 60 percent longer. Uh, I've added three whole chapters to it. Um, reworked, radically reworked everything that was there before. So it's in many ways a brand new book. Um, we'll keep the same title, Religion and Film, Cinema and the Recreation of the World. Um, so I've been working on that for the past year and that's basically I'm supposed to actually this afternoon <laughs> receive the uh, the page proofs for that. So that is uh, on, its, on its way and should be out uh, soon. Um, and then um, one other sort of side project I've been working on is uh, the it's kind of totally different for me, but uh, the Erie Canal, uh, 2017 is the bicentennial of the Erie Canal, uh, start of the Erie Canal in upstate New York, and where I live in upstate New York is not is really in the Erie Canal corridor, and became fascinated with the canal uh, when I moved there several years ago, and uh, began to realize that this is, you know, it's the birthplace of American religion itself, uh, so, you know, things like spiritualism, Mormonism, Adventism, uh, this sort of craze for utopian communities, apocalypticism, William Miller and the Millerites, uh, all this happened in the mid-19th century and all along the banks of the Erie Canal uh, alongside uh, women's suffrage and um, – um, anti slavery abolitionist groups. So Frederick Douglass lives there, Harriet Tubman lives there, uh Susan B. Anthony and Matilda Jocelyn Gage, all of them are living in the canal way. And it's really ultimately it's the canal way that again back to this idea of space. The canal way, the space of the canal generated people Uh, communication between people and newspapers and and new technologies and just all these new things were going on. And it generated new ideas ultimately about uh, religion and what could be done religiously. So experimental groups uh, rose up all over the place. So I became real fascinated with the Erie Canal as a uh, progenitor for uh, religious tradition and basically kind of beginning to think that, you know, this is the this is really when we think about American religion you know and all that entails um, I think the Erie Canal is kind of this this basic uh, home place for for all of that you know it all it all seems to spring from the from the ideas and, and thoughts going down the Erie Canal for uh, about twenty thirty years in the mid mid uh, 19th century so I'm writing a series of essays on that I was going to do a book project but just decided I'd rather do a series of of essays so I've got a piece coming out in America magazine for that and uh, I'm just starting to pitch another another piece related to that uh, around for some magazines so been playing with magazine essay writing lately that's been my my interest
1: cool well Brent uh, it's it's, it sounds interesting as always so uh, good luck with all that and we look forward to uh, to these other works that are about to come out
2: great thanks a lot Christian yeah appreciate
0: your time Thank you, Brent. That was my conversation with Brent Plate about Key Terms in Material Religion, published with Bloomsbury in 2015. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to a new episode of New Books in Religion.